Hello, and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com. I'm Rahul Chaturvedi, co-founder of Biotech 2050 and today's host. I'm also the founder and CEO of Clora. Clora is a platform that is solving the talent crisis across the life sciences industry by democratizing access to the world's best expertise in order to accelerate development. I'm excited to welcome Srini Ramanathan, Senior Vice President of Research and Development Sciences and Site Head for South San Francisco at Horizon Therapeutics. Thanks for joining us today, Srini. Thank you, Rahul. It's such a pleasure and a privilege to be here. Wonderful. So to to set the stage, uh, Srini, we'd love to learn more about your background, the arc of your career, and how you got to where you are today. Yeah, absolutely. So I um, grew up in India, finished my high school and my undergraduate in pharmacy there, and then I moved to the United States. I was initially in uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, to uh, finish my master's in pharmaceutics. And then I moved to Rutgers University in uh, New Jersey to complete my PhD also in pharmaceutics and then moved to California for my first job. I worked in a couple of small organizations when I first moved here. The first one became a part of a merger because of which the site that I was working in got shut down. So I had to look for a job again five months after starting there. Went to my next job, which merged with another company, made some business decisions that did not work out. And then I was in the job market again within 18 months and then moved to Gilead Sciences for some time. And from there, went to uh, AbbVie and then started at Horizon about three and a half years ago. Great. And Trini, what initially got you interested in the life sciences sector? Was that your intent when you decided to pursue your degrees in pharmaceutics? Yeah. When I finished school, the two subjects that I found myself particularly drawn to were biology and math. And there wasn't a really logical combination of those in at least the fields that immediately was obvious to me at the time. So. I felt that pharmacy had elements of both, and I pursued it. And you know, gradually as time went on, I um, also just saw the ability to pursue research in being able to help a lot of people. And I think it basically you know gave me the purpose. And from there on, I was just able to utilize my natural curiosities and some of these disciplines to kind of channel that into something that meant a lot to me. And that's kind of what got me into it, and that's what keeps going today. So given your you know, broad-based experience now across organizations of various sizes, from your vantage point, what are current trends that you're observing across the sector? And perhaps more broadly, you know, what does good look like in your opinion from a drug development perspective? Yeah, I think we are probably at one of the prime stages of both biotechnology as well as kind of scientific drug development as a field. There are a plethora of ideas a lot of innovation happening, a lot of support in, in the ecosystem for innovation in the form of funding, in the form of technology, in the form of just pursuing a broad array of um, you know, scientific approaches and really expanding our realm of both understanding and interest you know, in the context of the types of diseases we want to be able to develop treatments for. I think uh, coupled with all of that are also other events that are happening, both from a regulatory perspective in terms of across the world, there being various approaches and systems being provided to drug developers for being able to bring their medicine to patients in the form of approvals through a variety of different mechanisms. I think a combination of these pieces really makes it uh, you know, now a particularly rich time than ever. 
I think the thing that I would say, you know, is really good in terms of what is going on today is the breadth of uh, collaboration. Certainly, collaboration and uh, partnerships are a very key component of how Horizon approaches research and development. And so, as we can see around the world, certainly here in the U.S., M&A activity is very active, you know, is, is kind of very alive. A lot of smaller level partnerships to academic collaborations were really exploding when it comes to, you know, that particular angle of essentially drug development. And so, that is something that is going to be both necessary and we need to sustain it, just given the diversity and distribution of just knowledge. So that's something that I find very heartwarming. And the development of the mRNA-based COVID vaccines are a really good example of that. Yeah, certainly agree there. As you think about the landscape for partnerships, it's certainly picked up quite a bit of steam over the last five to 10 years or so. Curious to hear your thoughts on why that has accelerated in recent years and where you think that's headed. Yeah, I think partnerships have become increasingly important for a variety of reasons. When we think about the biotechnology ecosphere, we're not just made up of large organizations doing R&D. There are organizations of every size imaginable that's doing R&D, and they are doing some really interesting work. The ability for new ideas to be funded is in a very mature and a right place right now. And people see the value in that, the value in disruptive technologies, the value in approaches that are not yet prime time, but have a tremendous amount of promise. We know that this is actually true because the mRNA approach, in fact, encapsulates that you know, in a very nice way. Here is a technology that has never been deployed to develop medicines in any big manner for any of the diseases. And here comes this kind of global triggering event. And a previously completely untested technology has been rolled out to millions of people around the world in taking on a gigantic pandemic. There have been a number of uh, people that have come together to make this happen. You know, so Pfizer and BioNTech is actually a good example of that. You know, you have a really small organization partnering with somebody like Pfizer, right? So I think that's one key component of what we need to keep in mind is, you know, innovation comes in all shapes and sizes today. The second piece is talent. I think there is a diversity of breadth and expertise that people have, and you need a large variety of this kind of expertise to be able to truly develop next generation therapy. And they don't necessarily reside in one organization of a given size in one geography, or even in one discipline. So when we look at distribution of talent around the world, really, but certainly in the U.S., you know, from coast to coast, it becomes really imperative for us to look out at where are the next level innovations occurring and where are there meaningful transformative approaches that are being taken that have proof of concept that we want to be able to take and develop it further. So From a variety of perspectives, you can see that it is going to be critical for us to be able to look at partnerships from a very holistic level. On the industry side, these are some critical factors. The other piece is the collaboration that's happening with academia. A lot of universities, really rich output of ideas, biological targets, even molecules that can either be taken directly or can be improved upon and then taken further into uh, preclinical and clinical development. We are surrounded by so many avenues of new and interesting ideas. 
it's almost imperative for us to consider that when we think about what any organization's portfolio needs to look like. And so I think that you know now is a particularly remarkable time to be thinking about collaborations as a key component of what goes into a portfolio. So following up on the thread of collaborations, patients and patient perspectives are obviously an important collaborator. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on the role that patient perspectives have in drug discovery and development. Yeah, this is something we think about at Horizon extensively. We work primarily in rare diseases, and this is a particularly difficult journey for patients. So, you know, a little bit more about rare diseases. There are over 7,000 rare diseases. They affect about 30 million Americans. So there is a high level of unmet need for better treatments, and there really aren't that many effective treatments. Like I think less than 5% of these actually have some kind of a therapeutic available. There's really a very high need to develop new therapies. The other complexity here is that the average amount of time it takes for a rare disease patient to be diagnosed correctly is 7 to 10 years. It's, It's a really long time. You think about the number of times a patient has to go to different specialists, different doctors, just to understand what's going on in their body and to get an answer that somehow is close to what they are experiencing. A diagnosis is a big deal, and it's just not happening at the level at which it needs to happen. Our own CEO is a rare disease patient, and he kind of wears this very candidly in in the way he approaches what Horizon is about. We have to put the patients at the top of our mind as we think about developing new therapies. So just from an unmet need perspective, you know, there is a fundamental obligation we have to come up with better therapies for a lot of patients. The other piece is there is a lot of really interesting biology, but unless we can take a molecule that meets some of the promise of that biology and then be able to take into the clinic and demonstrate meaningful change, we really can't make meaningful impact on a patient's life. So The ability to understand what the clinical considerations are, what the symptoms are, what kind of struggles the patient's facing are facing daily, and therefore coming up with tools and endpoints to be able to then measure reliably and then capture change following an interventional treatment is also really critical. And for that, it's really important to talk to the patients to understand what is the value of a medicine to you? Like, what does good look like to you? And we do this routinely at Verizon. We have um, treatments that were taken into uh, for evaluation for uh, scleroderma, for example. You know, we've talked to a variety of experts and we've talked to a variety of panels and we kind of incorporate a lot of these daily struggles that the patients see and then try to determine, you know, what are the actual metrics we need to use to be able to evaluate value a medicine can provide. So philosophically, this is kind of how we've approached as an organization from day one it's a mantra we live by every day. And it really is a key driving force for you know, how we think about our pipeline. And to that point, the company has been growing quite significantly. And you've been at other high growth companies. Curious to hear your thoughts or learnings, perhaps, on how to maintain that company culture as you're adding tens or hundreds of new bodies into the mix. Yeah, that's an excellent question. You know, culture is one of the most important things we focus on at Verizon. And, you know, I'll take COVID as an example just to introduce the topic, really. You know, the world was going along fine and then COVID hit and our entire approach to what a workday looks like, you know, got upended. 
And, you know, we are creatures of habit. So we kind of got into this routine of thinking that, you know, going into work and getting work done at an office, you know, was the only way to go. And a lot of organizations basically did that. And one fine day, you know, in in the context of COVID, that whole concept changed. And over the course of the pandemic, there have been numerous kind of news articles and, you know, data points to basically talk about what the potential for attrition looks like, the potential for, you know, job changes look like. It kind of makes logical sense in that, you know, a lot of people have had really time to think about a couple of things. The first is the pandemic kind of brought to the forefront the fact that, you know, life is short and people want to be able to make the most of what, what it has to offer. Their work is a component of that, but they want to be able to do that in the context of everything that's going on outside of work. So that flexibility is really important. And the second is actually an equally important, if not a more important point, which is the meaning in their work. What is the value of my work and what does this mean to me? And that part is really critical. And I feel like a lot of times that's the one area where organizations need to particularly focus on is to provide, you know, meaning in employees' work. So At Verizon, we really thought about what our company culture needs to look like. And, you know, the the approach we have is we rally around a common mission, which is really important for the organization. And our mission is that it's about the patients. It's personal. When I joined three and a half years ago, during my first week, uh, our headquarters used to be in Deerfield, in Lake Forest in Illinois. We moved to Deerfield subsequently. And I walked into the office and I saw this big kind of photograph on the wall with a patient and the patient's mother and a patient services provider. And there was this big tagline that said, it's personal for us, it's personal. And I looked at that and somehow it's never left me because it's a daily reminder of kind of what the organization's about, but also how I wish to show up for the organization. I think from a culture perspective, having that clarity of what we're about is really helpful. The second piece is also the extraordinary lens to which the company goes to really setting an environment where people can come in and thrive. The organization's won uh, numerous awards in terms of the quality of work life and the culture here. You know, it's a testament to the fact that our employees really think about work and, you know, outside work time, work-life balance, and and all these pieces in in a very holistic way. We have days off that are called make it personal days where people are welcome to go and pursue their own, you know, nonprofit work. People do a variety of things and they post about it because they, they care and they're proud of it. So, I think a critical element of what all of these things, you know, basically underpin is this notion that you have to look at employees for what they are and all their interests and then be able to set up an environment where they're able to bring the best version of themselves in without having to necessarily give up that meaning component. I think having a good balance of all those components is really important to pursue people's passions, but also to be able to provide them the flexibility while sharing the common mission. Fortunately, Horizon's been able to do a really good job of that. So, Srini, tell us a little bit about your pipeline and what your approach to discovery looks like. Yeah. You know, as I said, I joined the organization about three and a half years ago. And in the time that I've been here, when I joined, we were just beginning to develop R&D, you know, as a function. We now have, you know, 27 programs in clinical or preclinical development. So our pipeline has really had a tremendous amount of expansion over a very short amount of time. You know, recently we acquired uh, this organization called Viela Bio, and it's really served to be a significant acceleration point for our R&D strategy. 
We acquired four assets in our pipeline, more than 100 scientists and researchers and technical experts that came along. And we really have set ourselves up uh, really nicely to kind of both formulate what we want to do in research in the realm of a research strategy, and then kind of ask ourselves the question, where do we see the science taking us? I think there's been a number of critical conversations we've had, both at the leadership level, as well as including all of our scientists to really understand, you know, what strategy could look like. It's a very inclusive process, and that's something really important in our organization. The strategy that we have today in the context of R&D, we shared this at our R&D day last week. Maybe pick out one example in our portfolio to kind of talk about this a little further. As a part of the acquisition of Viela, one of the molecules in the clinic is a compound called daxtilimab, was previously called HCN7734. We're exploring this for many different diseases, lupus, alopecia, and several other indications, all in the autoimmune disease area. And it really represents, I mean, the novelty in kind of how we're thinking about research. There were a lot of companies looking at inhibiting specific receptors or downstream signal, you know, cytokines and such, you know, in the context of treating some of these diseases. And what we decided was to understand, you know, rather than kind of going specifically after the context of this molecule, you know, type 1 interferon, why don't we go a little bit upstream and think about the cell types that actually make a lot of these? And that's how we basically came up with daxtilimab. So this molecule basically depletes a type of cell called uh, plasmacytoid dendritic cells, which are really important because they are one of the predominant producers of type 1 interferons. So these are basically specialized factories that get deployed at the site of damage and just churn out a lot of interferons. There's literature pointing to the fact that they produce about a thousand times more interferon than most of their cells. So they're specifically recruited to do this job. And so by depleting this, we expect to have a substantial impact on the pathophysiology that drives some of these diseases. And the other piece that's also interesting is that because it's a depleter, long after the drug has left the system, it continues to do its biological activity. So its duration of effect is substantially longer for a given dose. And that's really helpful because when we think about therapies for patients and the number of times they have to go into a physician's office and kind of receive the therapy, this happens to be a biologic. These things are really important. You know, we want to be able to make it as patient convenient as possible. For us, it's always about, you know, what is the right science and how do we go about developing a drug for that? The other piece that I would say is really kind of front and center in our approach to innovation is also what we basically call kind of practical innovation, right? So. There are certain therapies that are truly transformative. You know, we have a medicine that's approved for thyroid eye disease called the Tepeza, and it has really taken on a seriously debilitating disease where the patients typically had to go through surgery for improvement and turned it into a disease where people who are on this medicine see a remarkable improvement in a short period of time and frequently can avoid surgery. So we have examples of that. But we also have examples where we want to be able to maximize the value of our medicine. So we have a medicine for gout called Crestexa. And for us, it was really important to make sure we didn't just get the drug approved and stop there. So we have numerous trials that are going on, including one right now where we are giving Crestexa with immunomodulators. And that's been in a lot of case series. The response rates that we have seen has substantially gone up when given with an immunomodulator. So in addition to that, we're also thinking about more practical ways in which it's more convenient to take for a patient as well as administer for a physician. 
So innovation for us takes many different shapes and forms. And when we think about our pipeline, that's how we think about it in the context of just overall innovation. And we sometimes do this internally based on our expertise in certain areas. And then where we have a good scientific vision, but we don't necessarily have the toolkits ourselves, we partner with external companies to be able to do that. We have a couple of partnerships in the area of gout, one with a company called Hemashir Therapeutics, another with a company called Arrowhead. Both develop new therapies. One involves discovering new targets. The other involves coming up with an innovative, different way to uh, using the siRNA technology to develop new therapies for GAP. So a lot of diverse approaches to building our pipeline, but ultimately we try to follow the science. We try to be patient-centric and kind of that's the blueprint on which our pipeline is built. Excellent. That's very exciting progress over the last couple of years. Let's fast forward, let's say 20 to 30 years from now. Curious to hear your thoughts on what you think the biotech space looks like then, and where do you think opportunities lie between now and then? Yeah, I mean, as I said, I mean, this is one of the most exciting times to be working in R&D in biotech. There's just an explosion of new ideas and technology. I do think that some of the tried and tested modalities, for example, will continue to serve a purpose. Small molecules come to mind, you know, they've been around for 70 years, and they're the ones that most patients are most familiar with in the context of any of the medicines they may be on. Certainly, there's going to be a continuity with some of that. Biologics came into the fray latter part of uh, last century, and, you know, they're going to be very critical just because they are so much more specific in how they go about interdicting the disease. But we're going to find a lot of innovation there, too. There's going to be different constructs, not just monoclonal antibodies just different approaches to fusion proteins and such, bispecifics, and many different ways to really go after the disease and intelligent, uh, you know, using intelligent approaches. So that's going to continue. The other piece, it's one of the holy grails is really what personalized care should look like. And I think there are a number of advances happening right now, RNA technology, gene therapy, cell therapy. A lot of these are still in early days, but the amount of investment in it is really substantial. And it has to be. The key component here is that it is a very shared approach in terms of going after these. There is industry, government, academia, a lot of different groups that are coming together to work on this. And that's really important. That kind of collaboration is going to be really important. So over the next several decades, I expect to see a broader range of biological targets you know, being discovered and being brought for their therapeutic potential, a broader range of technologies being interrogated, and then some of the ones that are already in play they're going to mature. We're going to learn more about them and how best to utilize them, and importantly, where not to utilize them. And that's going to be critical in serving a lot of the life-threatening illnesses that we face today. Um, as I noted, with rare diseases, more than you know, 7,000 you know, different diseases you know, affecting 30 million Americans, we need a lot of innovation and new approaches to be able to uh, get to these patients to be able to make a difference in them. So I expect the innovation trajectory we're on to continue. And it's a great time to be an optimistic researcher in the area of biotech. But I think one thing I will say is that COVID has kind of spread that optimism to the entire world about what the area of biotechnology can offer and you know, what investment in R&D can offer to the society at large. So I'm, I'm particularly hopeful about that as well. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more around the optimism across the life sciences sector and more broadly across the world. So Srini, what's your current philosophy on leadership and how has that evolved over time? Yeah, I mean, really important concept. 
Leadership for me really uh, focuses on a couple of things in the, in the context of an organization. The first is to be able to put the organizational interest above oneself. So to kind of approach with uh, passion and, and commitment and intensity, but also to be focused on the mission of the organization. And that humility is really critical because as we work with bigger and broader teams, you know, in a more distributed model with the various diverse skill sets, it's going to be really important to understand that and to really have that humility and vulnerability readily apparent because it's going to be important for us to keep in mind that, you know, caring for people who are helping us serve the mission is an extraordinarily important component to being successful in leadership. So leading with courage, and for me, courage is basically having the humility to not know what you want, but the confidence that you know what you want. So you just, you're comfortable with uh, asking for help and readily acknowledging when you need it. And at the same time, having the curiosity to find out, you know, how can I help those around me and how can I care for them better so I can create an environment that they would want to kind of not just work in, but actually thrive in. I think this is a key piece because a lot of the people that I work with are scientists and they're experts in their field. And there is a component of that creative thinking that they are craving that, you know, that needs to be nurtured and supported. So for me, that really encapsulates leadership in just having a focus on the mission and then taking care of the people who are serving the mission through courage and curiosity and humility. And on the heels of that wonderful advice, would love to ask you, you know, what's one piece of advice you wish you could provide your, your younger self now? That's a really good question. I would say, you know, a lot of us train to become experts in a given topic. And so our focus ends up being very deep, but narrow. The process of drug development and getting a medicine approved is extremely complicated. It's very interconnected uh, with many other disciplines, and it happens in the context of a highly interdependent world. You know, when we are running clinical trials, you know, frequently these are global trials, so we're not immune to the realities that are happening around the world. I would say the ability to kind of lift oneself up and look around and connect with people with very diverse disciplines and backgrounds and just understand where they're coming from is particularly important, not just because it's necessary to be able to understand how to do your own job better, but that diversity and inclusiveness in the thought process is really critical as we try to take on more complicated and challenging projects and programs to be able to uh, advance them successfully. So I would say, you know, pick yourself up you know, out of your little shell and look around a little more and make new and different friends uh, as often as you can and build a big network, I think is the advice I would give myself. Wonderful. Well, Srini, thanks for sharing. I'm sure a small piece of the insight that you have gained across your career and for joining us today. It was a, it was a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you, Rahul. Really appreciate the opportunity. And it's, uh, again, a pleasure and a privilege to be here. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi. It's edited and mixed by Megan Lovering. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at biotech2050pod. Again, that's biotech2050pod. Until next time.